Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, Moving Forward in Truth and Love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel. You know, recently you've got the Waldo House shooter who killed four. You've got the Toronto terror suspect who killed 10. And these are just the latest in an all-too-growing list of lone killers who took the lives of innocent people in very soft target venues. So why does this evil continue to grow? And I am going to call it evil because it's not just a crime. It's evil. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Another evil, last week was the 19th anniversary of the shooting at Columbine High School in Denver, Colorado. And for many of us, it seared our minds as the first of many to follow of men, young men armed with loads of guns and ammunition or a truck or something and just killed scores of people. Why is this happening? And why should we be looking more closely at spiritual causes? Well, Dr. Leonard Sachs is a family physician and psychologist who wrote an interesting article in First Things magazine, which actually got my eye. The article is titled The Unspeakable Pleasure. And it caught my eye because that was a title that was very much about sin and about the power of sin. Um, and it caught my eye because very few experts have been talking about this aspect of mass shooting. So, Dr. Sachs, is welcome to uh, welcome to the White House podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Um, you are not a theologian, so that's okay. We're we're interested in your, you know, all, all of us are armchair theologians, really, when it comes down right down to it. All of us have a belief about God, but you have a very much more learned understanding of comparing what you know about people to what you find in the Bible, and I think that's very powerful. Um, and what's intriguing is that you you throw out you don't throw them out all the traditional reasons, but you really uh, you take that, but you look at the other aspect. You don't look primarily at bullying or abuse or family dysfunction. Why did why were you so able to incorporate this sort of a more spiritual aspect to understand what, what drives people? Well, you know, as a family doctor, I have seen firsthand kids who've grown up in really bad situations who've grown up to be good people. And conversely, kids who've grown up with every possible advantage, with two loving parents in a good neighbor, in a loving and tight-knit neighborhood, who grow up to be themselves cruel and violent. There's an unspoken assumption in American culture that humans are innately good. And if someone does something horrible, like Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris and Columbine shooting and killing 13 of their fellow students, well, then there must be an explanation because people are innately good. So if they did this horrible thing, they must have been bullied or they, they, something must have been wrong at home. Some explanation outside the individual. And what I have seen firsthand as a family doctor and what I believe is that there is such a thing as individual responsibility that you have to choose right and reject wrong. And there's nothing new about that. I mean, chapter 4 of Genesis, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, but you can master it. There's nothing new about this desire to kill. There have always been some men. It's a minority of men. Mm -hmm. But there's always been some boys, some men who enjoy inflicting pain. You'll find boys who torture animals and men who like to kill. Uh, It's not most men, but it is some men. And the parents and the culture must teach these men that's an evil impulse and you must master it. And we used to do that. 
mm-hmm. but we no longer do. But one of the, also these things, because I mentioned the sort of the terror aspect of this, does this fall in the same category that when you are a member of ISIS, you now can unleash that sort of thing in you that says it's okay to kill because I'm now judging them and I'm now doing God's will? Boys want to be men. Girls want to be women. What does that mean? Many boys are now adrift in a culture that says, hey, you can be anything you want to be. Uh, Gender doesn't matter. Gender's a spectrum. Uh, But DNA hasn't changed. Boys want to be men. What does that mean? If we don't teach them, if we cast cast those boys adrift, they will look around for something else. And if... uh, a terrorist group or a neo-Nazi group comes along and says, hey, being a real man means carrying a weapon and threatening to kill or killing other people. For some boys, that'll really resonate. Yes, that's right. Is there something genetic, though, in the idea that um, some people want to kill, some men want to kill, or some people want to kill and others don't? Is there a genetic predisposition here? Well, actually, there appears to be. And a lot of this research was really striking to me as I consulted with the people who have actually done the research. So here we have two boys, sons of the same parents. This one boy likes to roll in the mud and hit people. And this other boy wants to sit and draw a picture and doesn't want to hit or be hit. It turns out that's very much innately programmed uh, in terms of specifically the number of CAG codon repeats in the androgen receptor gene, we're now realizing you can look at the DNA and you can see this is to a substantial degree hardwired. And that's not an excuse, Uh, but it is a challenge. If you've got a boy who enjoys inflicting pain, you've got to direct that and challenge it okay, great, let's have him be a linebacker in football. (laughs) You know, um, Eric Harris, one of the two killers at Columbine, wanted to play football and tried out for the team at Columbine High School and did not make the team because he wasn't a good enough athlete. Hmm. It was a big high school. It was 3,000 kids at that time, and he just wasn't a good enough athlete to make the cut. What would have happened if he had made the cut, if he'd been allowed to be a linebacker and hit as hard as he can in service of a pro-social goal, namely winning the football game for the high school. Every culture has understood there are some men who want to hit, who want to hurt. And every culture has a mechanism, every enduring culture has a mechanism to guide, to channel that into pro-social behavior, maybe just something as simple as playing football. But when you don't allow that, you've got this boy instead sitting in his bedroom playing violent video games, fantasizing these testosterone-fueled fantasies Mm -hmm. of violence, which in some cases will become more than fantasies. And it happens away from his parents because now, because of social media, because of computers, you can do a lot of that outside of the purview of a parent who might try to direct your your, your leisure activity. Well, it shouldn't be outside the purview of the parent. And when I speak to parents, I remind them the American Academy of Pediatrics has very clear guidelines on this point. There should be no unsupervised use of a screen. Parents should know what video games their kid is playing. They should know what social media their kid is on. There should not be a phone in the, bed to, in the bedroom overnight. 
find a lot of American teenagers are going to bed with their phone uh, turned on, and parents are astonished to find that half the 10th grade class is texting at 2 in the morning. <laughs> and I say to parents, look, this problem is very easy to fix. At 9 o'clock at night, you say to your, you take the device from your child, you switch it off, and you put it in the charger, which stays in the parent's bedroom, in the parent's bedroom. And, you, and your kid can have it back the next morning. This has to be the parent's job. And many American parents would be like, oh, I can't do that. My daughter would totally freak out. Well, what's your daughter supposed to say tomorrow morning in school when your friend said, when your friend says, hey, I texted you last night at midnight. How come you didn't answer? Is your daughter supposed to say, well, sleep deprivation in adolescence has been shown to be a major risk factor for <laughs> depression? Yeah, that's ridiculous. You have to allow your daughter to say, hey, my evil parents take my phone every night at nine. Well, I'm going to have it back to the next morning. This is your job. But so many American parents are confused. They're unsure. They're uncertain about what their role is, what their authority is. They say, well, I think you should let kids decide whether to have a phone in their bedroom. And no, actually, you shouldn't. And that's not just my opinion. Those are the official guidelines of the American Academy of Pediatrics. No phones in your kid's bedroom. I want to mention your book because it's called The Collapse of Parenting, How We Hurt Our Kids When We Treat Them Like Grownups. And this is your latest book of Four, the first one is Girls on the Edge. You've got Boys Adrift, Why Gender Matters. But this collapse of parenting, I think, is hurting us more than anything else because it's an abdication, abdication of an authority of their responsibility as parents. And one of the things that, that always gets my craw is when parents say they are not going to teach their child any kind of religion. We don't want to impose our religion or a, a religion on a child that they want the child to sort of choose their own religion. What do you say to that? I ask parents, what is childhood for? What's the point? That's actually how I begin my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Look, a four-year-old horse is a mature adult. They run the Kentucky Derby with three-year-olds. A four-year-old human has barely begun. Humans are immature, not adults, for more years than most mammals live. Why? What's the point? Well, we don't have to guess. We have scholars, researchers who've spent their careers studying and comparing humans to other species, and the answer they give, why is human childhood so long? What is human childhood for? Because it takes that long for parents to teach the child what the child needs to know, which means fundamentally what is right and what is wrong. And that requires that you teach from a position of authority. If you say, well, I personally wouldn't, wouldn't cheat, but that's just me. You do you. You're not teaching anything. Uh, in order to teach right and wrong, you must teach from a position of authority. And again, I've been a medical doctor in this country for 32 years. 20 years ago, parents would say to their kids, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's not a suggestion. It's a command. But over the past 20 years, I've seen that command soften or morph into a question. And the question is often something like, well, how would you feel if someone did that to you? And the parent has no idea what to say when the son responds. If someone did that to me, I'd kick him in the nuts and then I'd sit on his face. Uh, this is your job as a parent. Mm -hmm. Your first job is to teach right and wrong. And that means you have to have an absolute a foundation, a transcendent foundation. It's It makes sense. It works to say, God has given us his commandments. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't covet. Why? Because God said so. That's why. 
But your kid, and it's not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion. It is a command, and there's a reason why they're called the Ten Commandments. They're not the Ten Suggestions. They're the Ten Commandments. But if parents step back and say, "Well, I, you know, I think enlightened parenting means letting kids decide. I'm going to set my child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong." I'm quoting there from a New York Times columnist who said. That enlightened parenting means setting your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. That columnist's name is Jennifer Finney Boylan. Well, that may sound enlightened, but it's not. It's a dereliction of duty. If you set your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong, and they live in the United States today, what they're going to discover is Akon, Eminem, Bruno Mars, Caitlyn Jenner, mainstream pornography, this is not a healthy culture in which to set your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. Children need parents more than ever because they're immersed in a culture of you do you, whatever floats your boat, if it feels right, do it. That was not American culture 30 years ago. It is American culture today. You say something in um, that we talked about and in an article, too. You talked about the Grammys this year and how the, the best song was mm-hmm. Bruno, Mars Bruno Mars saying, and then... Just before that, you get this impassioned speech about... About you know we've got to end this sexual harassment. Yes. Explain this because this is this yeah. is this is a thing that yeah, the society needs weird. to know. Janelle Monet, famous actress, January twenty eighth of this year, gives this sermon basically at the Grammy Awards, saying "Time's up for sexual harassment of any time, any kind." Okay, great. Then a few minutes later, Bruno Mars gets one of his six Grammys, more than any other artist, gets the Grammy for Best Song of the Year. Huge honor. Yeah, this huge is honor. It. This the is best it. song. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, what is that best song? It's titled That's What I Like. And he's uh, addressing a woman he barely knows. He says, hey, baby girl, what's happening? I got a condo in Manhattan. Uh, turn around and drop it for a player. Drop, drop it for a player. He's offering money for sex. He offers her his wallet, offers her shopping sprees in Paris. There is no suggestion of love or relationship. It's a transaction. I'll give you money. You turn around and drop it for a player. Uh, and his album cover says it shows a woman prone and naked And the album says, Money Makes Her Smile. That's the title of the album. Not courtesy or love or respect. Money Makes Her Smile. And that's the best song of the year in the opinion of the Recording Academy. That's the culture in which American kids are now immersed. A culture that degrades sex into a commercial transaction. If you set your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrongs, that New York Times columnist would have us do, That's a dereliction of duty. More than ever, you've got to safeguard your child from the culture in which they find themselves. You've got to teach your child right and wrong. You know, there's an interesting um, idea behind that because if you look at it and say, um, you know, I'm going to, you know, everyone determines right and wrong for themselves. You can't say that and at the same time then say sexual harassment is wrong. This is the, this is the right. problem with our culture. It's like, you know, oh, everybody has to determine right or wrong for themselves. But then they come out and say, yes, there is an absolute moral, and that's not yes. right. Well, that's what was so weird about the Grammy Awards, that here Janelle Monet gives this passionate sermon about time's up for sexual harassment of any kind. And then a few minutes later, the highest award goes to a song that celebrates sexual harassment. I mean, look at the words of the song. 
The song is titled That's What I Like. Imagine a young man at work going up to a female co-worker and, and quoting from the song, saying, hey, baby girl, what's happening? How about you turn around and drop it for a player and offers her money for sex? Well, he's going to get in trouble. He's going to get fired he, if he because, doesn't go to jail. <laughs> and human relations is going to say to him, look, you can't address a world, uh, a woman that way. You can't offer a co-worker money for sex. That's sexual harassment. Well, how should he know better if he has received no instruction? Boys are not born knowing what it means to be a gentleman. They have to be taught, and we no longer teach them. On the contrary, they're immersed in a culture, the culture of Akon, Eminem, Bruno Mars, Justin Bieber, that is teaching them that, hey, this is what cool guys do. This is what happens on the music video. Turn around and drop it for a player because that's what I like. That's the title of the song. You know, one of the things you talk about in the article, too, and we talked about this basically before, about this idea that the Bible understands the Judeo-Christian scriptures, especially in Genesis and the, the Old Testament, it understands well, who we are. You know, this idea that murder is as old as Cain and Abel because it, it, the exegesis of that whole encounter really talks about who we are um, when we get into it with our fellow human being. We, you know, there is, and I say we as a humanity, I mean, there are a few women who are like that, but very few. It, it really points to men. So there is this difference between men and women. But the idea of evil, can you say that evil is something that exists independently of us? And I know you're not a theologian, but the idea that evil that causes people to do this, or is it totally this idea that it, it's within us and that we need to nip it in the bud? Well, each religion uh, addresses that differently. In Judaism, there's what's called the Yetzirah, which means the evil impulse. And the rabbis teach that all of us, men and women both, have within us this yetzerah, this evil impulse, and that we must learn to govern it and recognize it and master it. Uh, in the Christian tradition, there's this idea of original sin that... No, humans are not innately good since the fall of Adam and Eve. We have this tendency, and without guidance and instruction, we're going to go in the wrong direction. We are not innately good. On the contrary, uh, as Paul says in Romans 7, you know, I do, what I ought to do, I don't do. And what I, I, I do, I, don't, I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Uh, he recognizes this, and and it is the job of the parent, and ideally supported by the culture, to teach the child to recognize mm -hmm. good and to reject evil. And again, American culture used to do a much better job of that. One of those, and this is not nostalgia. This is an empirical finding. So one of the studies I cite. Uh, in the collapse of parenting, uh, researchers at UCLA looked at the most popular television shows targeting children and teens from 1960 through 2010 and ranked each show on 16 parameters. What was valued in the show? What was the show teaching? And they found great consistency from 1960 through the year 2000. Uh, whether it was the Andy Griffith show in the 1960s or Happy Days in the 1970s or Family Ties in the 1980s or Buffy the Teenage, teenage Vampire, uh, Teenage Witch in the 1990s. 1960 through 2000, American television, American culture was teaching kids what's important. What's important, number one, is being a good person. 
being kind, doing the right thing. Number two, being liked, being liked by your friends, being a part of. That was number one and number two consistently for 40 years. Being famous, being wealthy were number 15 and number 16 out of 16 from 1960 through 2000. Then between 2000 and 2010, American culture flipped upside down. And suddenly being famous and being wealthy went from being number 15 and number 16 to being number one and number two. And being kind, being a good person, dropped from number one to number 16. And the most popular television shows of 2010, like Survivor, iCarly, being kind on the Survivor, that's for losers. All of a sudden, it's about winning. It's about famous, being famous. It's about being wealthy. American culture has become a toxic ch- culture for children. How did we get here? In the how did we get here in such a short period of time? Uh, why did American culture change and change so profoundly and so rapidly? Uh, it's one of the questions I try to struggle with, uh, and and one piece of it is social media. Social media has changed the way the culture works in a profound way, and it's happened quickly. Uh, And without a a lot of us realizing what happened, but it's worth a moment to recall that in the year 2000, Facebook did not exist. Mm -hmm. Instagram did not exist. Cell phones were flip phones. Um, You couldn't access the web on your phone in the year 2000. Things changed, and the culture of social media has infiltrated and changed American culture. So now wow. it's about having a million followers on Instagram. Uh, it's about being famous. Is this part of the reason, is, is the parenting part of the problem because they allow the kids to have the phones? Or is it that the parents who are bringing up their kids today just sort of abdicated their responsibility? I mean, it was just, you know. You know, when people see the title of my book, The Collapse of Parenting, they think I'm blaming parents. I'm really not. Look, I'm a parent. I've lived in this country all my life. The culture has changed. If anything is to blame, it's the culture. The culture has changed. This, the, your kid is not growing up in the culture of the Andy Griffith Show or the culture of family ties. They're growing up in the culture of Survivor, The Voice, Instagram, Justin Bieber. And that's a culture that undermines virtue. Again, one of the points I make in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is what's the most important thing you need to do as a parent? The most important thing you must do as a parent is to teach virtue and character to your child. That's not a sermon. It's not a guess. We've got very good... I devote two chapters of the book to to, uh, reviewing every relevant longitudinal cohort study. That means a study where you follow kids from childhood through adolescence into adulthood what predicts good outcomes? Virtue and character predicts good outcomes. So it follows your first job as a parent is to teach your child virtue, character. That means honesty, means self-control. But your mm-hmm. child is immersed in a culture that's telling them, hey, look, I'm, we're just a few blocks from Times Square. Pepsi's big slogan Uh, live for now. Don't worry about the sugar. Live for now. If it feels good, do it. I took a picture of the Pepsi slogan in Times Square, live for now. That was not American culture 20 years ago, but that is American culture today. How do we get out of this? Because now you've got a generation of, of, of young people being raised on these kinds of slogans. They don't have virtue as their priority. So how, and they're going to have children. They're going to have, and they already have them. I mean, they don't, they, they, this individualistic kind of idea doesn't help them form great relationships. The divorce is, you know, much higher if they even get married. But how do you 
turn this around? Well, I speak to, to parents and I say, you must be courageous. Take the phone from your teenage son or daughter and turn it off. And your, your daughter may protest. Uh, she will say, I use it as my alarm clock. Let them know they still make actual alarm clocks. You can buy one at the store. <laughs> then she'll say, but what if there's an emergency? Remind them you still have a house phone, a landline in the parent's bedroom. Uh, if there's a true emergency, her friend is welcome to call. You have to be courageous. And your daughter may say, but nobody else does this. And she may be telling the truth. And you will have to have the courage to say, I don't care. You're my child. And I'm going to raise you the right way. And it's, it's not easy to do when everyone else on the block is letting their kids take their phones to bed with them, letting their sons look at porn, and letting their daughters post semi-nude selfies on Instagram. You've got to be, you've got to raise a child of virtue, which means you have to be a virtuous parent. And that's, that's going to require courage. Well, Dr. Leonard Sachs, I want to thank you so much um, for talking um, with us, well, with me. And on one side, I'm, I'm actually very depressed. <laughs> but I do believe that God is in control. I do believe that he has sounded the alarm, and you're one of his alarm makers, uh, and you're sounding that alarm. Um, and I want to also remind um, the listeners that uh, to check out your books. Uh, the latest book is The Collapse of Parenting. Um, please get that. Um, but there are other books. You have um, Girls on the Edge, uh, The Four Factors Driving the New Crisis for Girls. You've got Boys Adrift, The Five Factors Driving the Growing Epidemic of um, Unmotivated Boys and Underachieving Young Men, and then Why Gender Matters, um, You know What Parents and Teachers Need to Know, and About the Emerging Science of Sex and Differences. Uh, you really have really hit it on all cylinders here. And I want to thank you so much for being on, on, on uh, Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you for listening. I'm Lauren Green. <laughs>